Today, we are going to discuss a, a very significant topic, um, and uh, I'm going to introduce some ideas here that I can't prove from a, with beyond a shadow of a doubt, um, but I think that they're worth thinking through, and so maybe you have some other ideas on what we're going to be talking about. We certainly welcome those um, uh, thoughts or, or questions. Please put those in the comment section on, on Facebook or uh, if you're following us on Zoom, uh, feel, feel free to, uh, to type out some, some questions there as well. We're going to be talking about when God strikes people dead. Um, and you might just be thinking through the, the scriptures, the examples that you uh, have where God strikes individuals dead and for what reason he does that. If God were to strike everybody dead who violated his uh, laws, his instructions, his will, um, how many viewers would we have today, guys? Um, I don't know if we'd be on the show. <laughs> you, you, well, that was my second question is how many participants <laughs> would we have? Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, if God struck everybody dead the first time that they sinned, then we, civilization would have been over with. Uh, you know, um, God doesn't do that. I'm very grateful for his mercy uh, in, in that respect, for his long suffering. Yeah. But go ahead, Chase. Oh, man. I, I just had this quick one pop in my head. Um, we were just talking about this in our adult class. You all might remember whenever the spies go into the land in numbers. Uh -huh. And um, in fact, what ends up happening is they tell everyone that they can't take the land. At least 10 of the spies do. And as a result, the Lord is, is very upset with them. And he wants to strike the people dead right then and start over with Moses. And Moses will appeal to the Lord's um, uh, power and how it would look to the nations if he did strike these people dead, but I love how Moses put this, but now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant and loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people, according to your great steadfast love. So, Moses is appealing to the power of God, and certainly God's power would be demonstrated in his ability to strike everyone dead right there, but God's power is demonstrated here in his ability to forgive and restrain himself and forgive these people and pardon them, and so I think that's really cool that Moses words it that way. Let your power be great in the way that you forgive. So anyways, Joe, I don't know how I got off to that, but that's something. No, you no that's helpful. Uh, so that's in the uh, the Numbers uh, 13 passage. Numbers 14. I'm so sorry. Numbers 14. Numbers 14. Yeah, no, that's fine. Then so that, that, is, that, just ahead, leads, that leads to the question then, why in some instances does God forgive and why in other instances does God strike someone dead? Right. Right. Which also, Chase, just for, for reference sake, that's almost the exact quote. Moses is quoting himself. Uh, from Exodus 34, Exodus 34. Um, exactly. uh, verses yeah. 6 and 7. And in that text, I think we have the answer there, Jeff. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the character of God 
demands justice and uh, vindication for disobedience, but it is mingled with his graciousness and long suffering, um, uh, even pointing all the way to, to the cross, I believe, ultimately. Um, but because he doesn't destroy those individuals on those couple occasions, and, and those are some pretty grotesque acts of rebellion, right? Um, you know, here they are at Mount Sinai and uh, um, uh, having the opportunity, have, having seen the glory of God up there on the, uh, on the top of the mountain, and pretty quickly they turn away and follow the Egyptian way and, and with the golden calf. Or after that incident, then going into the wilderness, and they come back with all of this fruit, literally, of the, uh, of the, uh, the promised land, and they reject what, what God has said. Um, you know, you think, wow, I, I, at that point, I, I would be ready to say, I'm going to pull this van over. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to met out some serious punishment here. I'm, I'm tired of this action. Uh, but God, it, he, he does punish, but he doesn't strike everybody dead. Maybe even think about some other ones that seem, at least to me, and, and I'm speaking in human terms, seem even more obscene or, or a greater violation. David and Bathsheba, you know, how... What was the punishment for, for adultery? Uh, it, it, the person was to be killed. And yet we see God showing long suffering there. Um, and it's not just that. I mean, it's not just the adultery. It's, it's the murder of Uriah. It's the cover-up of all of that. Um, uh, you know, there's several things that David does that we would think he's worthy of death. David says after the parable is given that the guy who stole the, the little sheep was worthy of death. How much more the guy that steals the the wife of one of his most trusted soldiers? Uriah was one of David's mighty men. Um, but God doesn't strike David dead there. And so, again, we're just reminded over and over of God's long-suffering and graciousness. Um, uh, and that doesn't mean that, that we can do what we want uh, in those situations, that we don't have to, to worry about it. Um, uh, there's a quote from Augustine that says that David's fall should put upon their guard those who have not fallen and save from despair those who have. And I think that's helpful to remember um, that just because we haven't been killed, um, we don't we have to think that we're getting by with that. Because God does sometimes strike people dead. And so why does he do that? Um, the first illustration that I have of that is in Leviticus, the 10th chapter. So why don't we, we start there and uh, look at a couple of passages of where God did strike individuals dead. Leviticus 10 is, unfortunately, where some people begin in the book of Leviticus. Uh, you would almost think that there aren't the first uh, nine chapters of Leviticus, um, because a lot of times that's all that people know about Leviticus is the story of Nadab and Abihu. I didn't but know what happens? Zero after this. I thought it was just chapter one. <laughs> exactly. That's the approach that I'm afraid sometimes we take uh, and we miss out. So God strikes Nadab and Abihu, uh, verse one. One of you guys want to read? Uh, uh, let's read verses one and two to start off with. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans 
and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So the examples that we're going to look at, at least to start off with this afternoon, are cases where God struck somebody and they died immediately. Uh, there are other examples where God struck people and they died over time, or where God ordered other people to strike them. And some of those passages will be relevant also, and so we may have time to, to get into those at the end. But this is a case where God struck Nadab and Abihu, and they died right away. Um, uh, the, the text, I think, makes that really clear um, uh, that their, their death, you know, they are devour, devoured by fire. Um, uh, and so they, they don't, there's no lingering there. Um, the bodies are, are lying there. They don't live longer and taken somewhere else or something like that. So God strikes them. What's the setting of this? What, what, maybe we won't go all the way back to chapter one. Let's go back to chapters eight and nine. What's the setting? What's going on there? Well, they're consecrating Aaron and his sons, and there's uh, uh, quite a procedure in chapters eight and nine that involves sacrifices, and and um, at each step of the way, as Moses puts the, I think he puts the turban on their heads, maybe in the sacrifices. But at each step of the way, there's the phrase that is found repetitively in chapters eight and nine. It's just as the Lord commanded. They did just as the Lord commanded. I don't remember how many times it occurs in those two chapters, but quite frequently. But I guess, Joe, your point is that the, the big picture of 8 and 9 is, is God's laying down exactly what he wants. And there's a principle there of, wow, the, the Father is being very specific on how to go about these sacrifices. So maybe we should do it the way he wants us to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Both both of those comments spot on. Uh, we see that repetitiveness just as the Lord commanded. And uh, Moses takes that serious. Aaron takes that serious. It seems like Aaron's four sons take that serious. It mentions and his sons several times in chapters eight and nine. So you have Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar, the four sons of Aaron, are engaged in this sanctification, consecration of the priesthood. They're active in that for, for a week. Um, uh, they, uh, they're taking a part in that. Uh, and so after they are consecrated, then God shows his glory by, um, uh, in, in verse 23, uh, they begin to offer some sacrifices, verse 22, and uh, Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle meeting, came out, blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering, the fat on the altar. All the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And so God has manifested his glory on this occasion, and then the text doesn't tell us why Nadab and Abihu did that. I have, I have guesses. They're no better than anybody else's. Um, uh, but for whatever reason they did it, this is what they did. And this was the reaction of God. Now, I think it's helpful sometimes to even talk about what the reasons might be. I don't know if you guys want to chime in on any of that. Well, just, just before you get on into Nadab and Abihu, you, you were summing up what happened when fire came down and consumed the sacrifice that was offered in, in connection with the consecration of Aaron and his sons. And I think that if you were there, you know, sometimes we pray in our assemblies something to the effect that may the songs that we sing or the confession of our lips or the praise from our lips be an acceptable offering in your sight. I think that if you were there on that occasion, 
and you'd gone through all of this procedure and it's quite complicated and it's over a number of days. There's a seven day period mentioned in verse nine and on the eighth day things resume. And, and if you've gone through all of that, because this is what the Lord instructed and then you set out this offering and then fire comes down from heaven and consumes that offering, I think your, your sense would be God is pleased with what we've done. God has accepted this offering. Right. Yeah, undoubtedly. That's what we see in, in the book of Genesis, what they would have uh, known about, uh, that, that that's what that would be a sign of. Uh, an offering is set out and God consumes it. That means he's uh, entering into a covenant that he uh, has fellowship with those that have offered it. Uh, and so then Nadab and Abihu do this, and God strikes them. Um, this doesn't seem to rise, and again, I'm speaking foolishly in human terms. This doesn't seem to rise to the level of murder and adultery. Um, and so why does God strike them dead? Uh, you know, that, that's, that, that's sort of a, a question. The text doesn't compare those things, so it doesn't answer that directly. Uh, my question directly, but it answers something I think more important directly. Well, can, can I also point yeah. out, does it, sure. the text also just kind of moves on, doesn't it? No, I think really, we get to verse three in Leviticus 10, it's like there was a point to what just happened, and Moses is going to tell us what the point is. He's going to tell Aaron what the point is. Verse three, Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke. What is? What just happened is a demonstration of what the Lord spoke. And what did the Lord speak? By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's exactly what they failed to do. I guess all I'm suggesting is that it's kind of surprising. This is, this is a big thing that happens. But in a matter of, of seven verses, it explains what happened. It explains who's going to take their place. And then in verse 8... The Lord spoke to Aaron saying, do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons. And it just continues on. So, so some people actually connect verse eight with the first part of chapter 10. I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced that, that we're supposed to do that. Maybe, but I think it's, um, it's a bit speculative, but the connection some people see is that since right there, it starts talking about not drinking strong drink, maybe Nadab and Abihu were drunk. And that that's what they did. And so the Lord takes this occasion to say, you can't be doing that. You've got to, you've got to be uh, sober so that you can accomplish your task appropriate, appropriately. Right. I don't know that that's, I don't know. What, Joe, what do you think? Do you think that connection? Yeah, works? so I, I do think that that is what had happened. Again, I can't prove that. I'm not going to argue about it. But I do think that that's the case. And, and here would be my reasoning or one of my reasons for that. Later on in the book of Leviticus, we're going to have various chapters dealing with laws and prohibitions for the priesthood. Uh, and that would seem, again, I'm speaking somewhat foolishly, right? That would seem to be the perfect place to put something like you are prohibited from drinking wine or intoxicating drink. To, to put it here seems out of place unless it is connected to the event. Um, uh, and so that, that's my... Uh, you know, if in my Bible, I've got a subtitle at the beginning of verse eight, conduct prescribed for priests. If you ignore that, you know, and just read one through nine or, or I'm sorry, one through 10 um, as, as, as a set, as a pericope, then uh, I think 
that the that it, it helps to explain why Native and I did, did what they did. That may not be the case. I, again, I'm not going to argue that, but it just seems like an odd place to put the prohibition for alcohol. Go ahead, Chase, you start to say something. I had to ask you what pericope meant. <laughs> I, was gonna, I, was, I, was, I wasn't going to, I started not to let that one slide also, but I thought, well, we'll go to slide. It, it's, uh, it's a word that I learned from a, from a very educated man, John Weaver. And so I tried to throw it in any chance that it sounds like it would fit into the, uh, uh, the context. Um, it, it's a section of scripture, a, a smaller section uh, within uh, like a subset or whatever. Like a single narrative. I mean, I, yeah. sometimes, you know, when you're on Google and you just spell it close enough and it gets it. Yeah. I didn't even spell yeah. it close enough yeah. for it. To so look, look up, look up, look up periacope. That's how, yep. that's how people are, uh, are inclined to, uh, to spell it or say it after they read it. Yeah, you give, you give yourself away if, if you use the word and you say periacope. <laughs> you, you kind of lose the effect yes well yes. uh i did i did i was going to read a comment from perry hall um which combines kind of our beginning comments with mm -hmm. this story really well he said instead we're back uh anyways perry commented instead of being shocked that god and his holiness struck people dead maybe we should be shocked that god and his holiness gives grace so that we are not struck dead immediately upon sinning that, Every that, breath is taken by yeah, God's grace. That's an yeah. excellent observation. Yeah, and yeah which, is our whole, which was our point at the beginning too, kind of yeah. looking at these examples, saying, "Wow, we're we're very fortunate um, that that is uh, that it is not us." Um, well, well, and that's kind of the point in Romans chapter three when it talks about the righteousness of God being demonstrated um, in in the in Jesus being offered as a propitiation because of the passing over of sins done aforetime, the point Paul's making is you could look at how God has not just struck everybody dead and say, where's the, the justice of this holy God? And then, well, he, he demonstrates his righteousness, his justice, when he does punish sin, even the sins done aforetime uh, in Jesus Christ. And so uh, the, the premise there is that God must punish sin, that death is the consequence. Yeah, uh, excellent points, and, and I think that does, Perry's comment fits right into what we were saying at the beginning. Um, because these are rare occasions where God strikes somebody dead, it is striking um, uh, when we read about them. And, and so I pause to think, well, so why did God do that here uh, when he's been so merciful to millions and millions of people? Here's my conclusion, and this is just Joe's conclusion. Take it for what it's worth. And it doesn't fit every scenario in the scriptures. But I think that this is worth thinking through. We are right now at the very beginning of collective worship for the Israelite nation. The priesthood has been instituted. The tabernacle has been built, Exodus 35 through 40, taking place at this exact same time. The sacrifices have been prescribed in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. Everything is set up for the worship. And here are the first uh, violators of that. And you have this connection of God is glorified in his actions in Leviticus 9 and verse 23, the glory of the Lord appeared. And then what was it that they failed to do, verse 3 of chapter 10, before all the people, I must be glorified. And so failing to glorify God is a capital offense. Um, and I think God is wanting to set the tone right at the beginning. 
He's not going to do that for every priest that violates the, the laws. Um, you can read passages like Ezekiel 22, 26, where the priests were violating, profaning the sacrifices, numerous other occasions where that took place. God didn't always strike them dead. He does it here. My conclusion is that he's trying to set the tone. You need to take this serious. Um, uh, and so maybe I'll just follow along and see if this does fit into at least some of the occasions here. Again, I know that there are some exceptions where that doesn't fit, but I think that might help explain why God does on some occasions strike somebody dead. Um, let's look over at First Chronicles chapter 13. Just as, as we're turning there to your point, it, it is clear enough in Leviticus 11, Leviticus um, 10, that God is meaning to make a point for the benefit of everybody else. And how more appropriate than as the nation is, has been, has come before God at Mount Sinai and is about to embark upon this journey to the promised land. Yeah. And so whether Nadab and Abihu were drunk or filled with pride or disregard or whatever, they did what they did. In 1 Chronicles 13, we find what I conclude to be quite a different scenario with a man named Uzzah. Um, uh, here, the ark is being brought into Jerusalem. Jerusalem has, has been captured from the Jebusites again. Um, uh, David has, has taken the stronghold, uh, and that is going to be where God is going to dwell from that point for, for a long time. The ark has not been brought there. It's, it was returned from the, by the Philistines after, their, uh, after they sort of used the ark as a, as a traveling trophy, um, uh, you know, going from Philistine city to Philistine city as it devoured those cities, as it destroyed those cities. Uh, eventually, the Philistines got smart enough and sent it back home. And uh, it didn't make it all the way, but uh, David is going to bring it into Jerusalem. And as he's doing so, he builds, he has a brand new cart built. The ark is put on that cart and it's traveling in. There are 30,000 soldiers or men of, of battle uh, that are accompanying this. It is a parade of parades. There is all sorts of instruments being played. It is a, a great joyous occasion as the ark, the presence of God is being brought into Jerusalem and as they cross a certain place, the oxen that are driving the cart stumble, and Uzzah reaches out and tries to steady the, the ark. Um, uh, and uh, as, he as he does that, he touches the ark, and what happens to Uzzah? He is struck dead. Uh, the anger so, of the Lord burned against him. Yeah. So as I'm reading that, I don't get the same impression that I do of Nadab and Abihu. Right. I, I don't see Uzzah as being, you know, hardened rebellion against God or flippantly, you know, I don't care what God thinks or, or whatever. I, I suspect that if a lot of people were in his sandals, they would be inclined to do the exact I mean, same thing. I mean, if you look back at uh, verse... Um... Oh, goodness. Oh, uh, there in verse 7, it says that there was three guys, Abinadab, Uzzah, and Ahio, which makes sense because Ahioans can't drive. But Ahio, 
it tells us was right there with him. It, I mean, if the weight right. of the ox had shifted one direction, it could have been him, you know? Mm -hmm. So it seems like it was complete, kind of completely up to chance as to who it was that this was going to land on. Right, right. So let and me so, throw out this question. Do we have any reason to think we know that Uzzah was eternally condemned? Uh, no, I, I think that's an excellent point to make. Um, uh, I don't have, uh, I, I'm not going to draw that conclusion. Um, uh, well, I mean, I let me very much some, want to leave it into God's hands. Let me, so, give, let me give some pushback, but let me just ask this. Then why would it say that the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah? In verse sure. Or, well, I think he was angry with Uzzah. I just don't know what Uzzah's eternal home is. I think that was what your question was, yeah. right, Jeff? Yeah. I mean, has, has the Lord ever been angry with Job? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, several times. Um, and I guess I'm not of the inclination to say that we just have to be right at the very second that we die, that, that we have to make sure that we didn't do any sin right then um, in order to, to be saved. I don't know how that's going to play out. I, that, that's God's end of the stick, and I'm just going to let him uh, deal with that. So, so, you know, one of our viewers comments, well, the wages of sin is death, and sin separates from God, and, and so I think maybe in, 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 his, in the viewer's mind, the point of the comment is, as a sin, so death. And, well, is that eternal death or not? Well, ultimately, the wages of sin is eternal death, but that's what the blood of Jesus is about. The right. blood of Jesus preaches backwards as well as forward. So I don't, I don't know that we can conclude that us is eternally condemned. So I guess I'm kind of getting at this point. I don't think that I can say everybody that God didn't strike dead is saved. Uh, well, I, I, I said that wrong. I know I can't say that everybody that doesn't get struck dead is saved. God struck people dead and others he didn't. But if you're not struck dead, that doesn't mean you're going to have eternal life. Right. What about those who are struck dead? I don't, I don't think I can say that everybody whom God struck dead is eternally condemned. So what I'm trying to say is there's not a one-to-one -one correlation between being struck dead by God and being eternally condemned, and nor is there a one-to-one -one correlation between not being struck dead by God and, and having eternal life. Sure. Yeah. So, so then, and that brings us back to the question that we're kind of working on here. Okay, so if it's not that you've done something so bad that you're eternal con eternally condemned and the blood of Jesus cannot address it, then what is the point? When God did strike somebody dead, there must have been some point to it, uh, yeah. besides just the fact that he sinned. Um, and, and the point you're getting at is in some of these instances, it's associated with a moment in history where God is needing to make a point for everybody else. Right. And, and, that, and I think that point is made here. Um, you know, it, it's like, pause, everybody stop. Okay, we're, we're not taking the ark any further. We got to figure this out. And, and so they, they send the ark over uh, to uh, Obed-Edom's house and the Lord greatly blesses Obed-Edom. So it's not that the ark is plagued or that there's a problem with the ark. I think God shows that almost in the reverse situation in the very next text. Uh, Obed-Edom is greatly blessed by God, that having the, the presence of God there. God wants people to be in his presence. God wants to dwell with man. I think he's sort of making that point in the, in the positive sense there. But if you don't do what God said the way that he said it, here's, here's the consequences. Uh, and he uses this 
punishing immediately and physically of Uzzah to drive that point home. What's the reaction of, of David afterward? David gets angry in verse 11, but what else does David get uh, happen to David in verse 12? First Chronicles 13, 12. David was afraid of God that day saying, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? That's a really good question. <laughs> that's what David should have asked earlier. That's yeah. what he should have asked at the end of chapter 12, but he didn't. He did not consult. And that's the point that he makes in 1 Chronicles 15 and in verse 13. Yeah. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. So, so David the got the point, and, yeah. and then he communicates that point to the rest. Right. Exactly. Uh, and so here at the very beginning of, of, of worship, you know, of Jerusalem, kind of like the beginning there in Leviticus 10, God sets the tone uh, for what's going to take place in Jerusalem. Uh, go ahead, Chase. Um, wasn't there, I'm trying to find the passage. I think I just found it. Let me just flip my Bible over to it. But the kings were supposed to know the law they were supposed to deuteronomy 17 yeah it, deuteronomy 17, I, had my, four, I had my bible in deuteronomy 17 i couldn't place my eyes on it yeah yeah, yeah. Um, uh 14 through 17 in particular thank you thank you 14 yes, through 20 exactly. is a text yeah yes and um that was a requirement for the kings to be reading the law and, and this sure. should have been something that if david had read through he would have known yeah. how to do this and, and all of the priests i mean yeah the, abinadab uh ohio uzza you know you, you, he's got 30,000 people, you know, it, it is interesting that nobody said, hang on a second, why are there rings in the bottom of the ark? You know, uh, it, it, this isn't a secret of, of what's to happen. Um, uh, why might they have gotten, and again, we're, we're, we're jumping a little bit into the area of speculation, but I think maybe it's helpful just because it's in the text, so it's not complete speculation. Why did they choose a new cart with the oxen to, to drive the ark in. Is there any precedent for doing that? Not in the Torah, but that is how the Philistines had transported it back in chapter five. Of the last time that it had been transported, that's what had happened. Remember, they had used a couple of cows. They left the calves at home. Uh, and if the, if, they, if the cows uh, go back to the barn, then they know it's not from God. But if they go down the road, then it's from God. The, Philist the Philistines did it and it worked. You know, it, it got the ark out of there. Of course, the Philistines didn't have Levites. Uh, and so God allows that to happen to bring the ark back to God's people. But the Israelites followed the Philistine pattern instead of following the uh, instructions from, uh, from the Lord um, in Exodus and, and, and Numbers. And this is kind of just a side point, but, you know, it, it seems natural that if somebody is, is, has some kind of a sense of reverence for God and they think that, wow, I, I should do something that shows that I, I'm re reverencing God, well, you get a new cart instead of some old, dumpy, dirty, beat-up cart. Mm -hmm. But what, a, a little lesson, it's not our point today, but a little lesson here to learn is that just because I'm, I'm thinking I'm doing something for God, um, maybe even I'm trying to show some reverence toward God, does not mean that God is going to be pleased with that. It's the lesson that Saul had to learn. Uh, to obey is better than to, to, to uh, sacrifice and to hearken in the fat of rams. I think that's the way it goes. 
And so if I really want to show reverence to God, do what he said. Um, and God wasn't pleased, even though they got a new cart here in well, David's case. And I mean, Perry, Perry Hall commented and said, while Uzzah was sinful in touching the ark, Uzzah was already involved in sin before that and how he was involved in moving the ark. So before right. that, Uzzah and the others were receiving God's grace um, and not being struck dead right then. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, uh, one of the things that we notice is that the sin did not begin with Uzzah touching the ark. Yeah. And David makes that point there in First Chronicles uh, 15, um, because we did not consult about the proper order. Uh, that's why God broke out. He, David, I, I really appreciate it. David includes the pronoun us. Um, he sees himself at fault, which is one of the things about David being a man after God's own heart. Uh, each time that we see him sinning, I don't think there's an exception to that. Um, he brings it back to, yes, I am the man. I'm the one that did that. Sometimes it has to be pointed out, but he draws that conclusion. He doesn't keep making excuses like, say, uh, King Saul does. Um, uh, and so, yeah, uh, that, that's an excellent point. The, the sinning had been going on before from the, from the fact that they did not follow the instructions that were very clear. Um, and I would just suggest that there's a good lesson for us to be cautious. Sometimes we might have a tendency to look at false religions and see something really good about their pattern and want to adopt that because, and I'm going to speak in uh, carnal terms, they are better salesmen than we are. And so they've got, they've got a better sales pitch. They've got a better sales plan than we do. And, and so we ought to start doing what they do um, because look at all the people that, that are being converted to you know, X, Y, or Z uh, religion. Uh, we need to start doing what they're doing, but we're not in the, the, the sales business. We're in the, the salvation business. And so we don't follow people who are ungodly or irreverent or, or not following God's pattern. We also don't follow the godly if they're not doing it God's way. Um, we just need to come back and say, well, what does God say about that? And the amazing thing about this text in First Chronicles 13 and 15 is details matter. What difference does it make how the cart is transported? I can just imagine the masses crying out, you know, just for crying out loud, it doesn't make any difference. As long as it's being transported, it's being transported. Who cares how? God cares how. So that's who cares. Kind of along, along the lines of what we've been saying here the last few minutes, Sandra, one of our viewers says, just like people today, they worship God in the way they think God would like, when in reality, yeah. God's already told us how he wants us to worship him. Amen. Uh, that is exactly right. And, and that's, that's the attitude that, and, and so we have to put ourselves in check on this. This isn't, we're not just blasting everybody else. We need to look very closely at what we're doing and why we're doing it and, uh, and make sure that even the details, you know, sometimes people will, will say things like, you know, does it make any difference how we sing or who preaches or, you know, and just fill in the blank on a number of things. But then what about the things that we do? Um, uh, you know, what about our worship and how we come before him? Uh, and I'm not talking about a dress code. I'm talking about our, our hearts. Uh, we need to make sure that we are serving him and that the details make a difference. Um, we've got about nine more minutes here. I want to take a look at one more example. This one in the New Testament of God striking uh, individuals dead uh, in Acts, the fourth chapter. Go ahead, Chase. It's not, complete, it's not a complete lesson without three points. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, we can't get to the invitation song if you don't. Um, uh, and so in Acts, Acts 4, 
uh, we have in verses 32 through 37, uh, saints that are in circumstances that others can help. Uh, we're introduced to a man named Barnabas who takes a piece of land and, and sells, sells it and gives that to the apostles to be distributed amongst those who had need. Verse 35 in particular, uh, talking about that 35 and 36, 37. And then chapter five, not the best chapter break perhaps because it seems to be the contrast to Barnabas, Ananias, and Sapphira. They also have some land. They also sell it. They also bring it and lay it at the apostles' feet. But a very different ending. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira are not called Barnabas. Uh, they they live in infamy. Barnabasa. For, for yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, so uh, what happens to Ananias and Sapphira when uh, somebody wanted to, how about if we read uh, a little bit of text here. I uh, haven't done enough of that in our in our discussion today. My bad. Uh, how about if we read uh, verses 1 through uh, 11, or 1 through 10, I'm sorry. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price <clears> of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. As he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up, covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yeah, that was the price. And Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And oh, you want me to stop there? I always, I, it's just every time I read that passage, what strikes me, there's several things in it, but apparently she's totally unaware that her husband, what has happened to her husband. And right. so the first inkling that she would have is the feet of those who buried your husband. You know, at, at right there at that point, you might, what? Buried my, what? And, and then you hear the rest of it and you're I just, yeah. okay, anyway, but that's not the point you want to make. No, no, but, but that is, I think that does help us to appreciate the severity of what's going on. Um, you know, what a shocking split second for her, yeah. the realization before she faces the same fate. Um, so, you know, these were not horrible people. They, they had an extra piece of property. They sold it. They gave the money to uh, the apostles to, to help out others. And they kept some back and lied about it. This is one of those little white lies. Who's it hurting? You know, there's, there's nothing wrong. Is somebody actually going to be harmed by what they, they said? Well, yeah, two people were harmed by what they said uh, themselves. Um, uh, you know, the, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you've not lied to men. You, you've lied to God. Um, and so lying. Many people will take the attitude that lying is insignificant, especially if it doesn't hurt anybody. Um, you know, in fact, we might even be tempted to lie to encourage people. 
um, uh, or to, to, you know, to compliment people and think, well, that doesn't hurt anything. But, but lying is condemned by God. We ought not to lie. We ought to speak the truth. Ephesians 4 makes it so abundantly clear. Um, and in a, particularly in a case like this, whether it is so that they would be thought of like Barnabas or, uh, you know, whatever their motive was in, in lying about this, holding some back and, and lying about it, when it was their property, they weren't compelled to sell it. After they sold it, they weren't compelled to give everything. But once they did that and then they lied about it, they are condemned by God for that. And so, again, I would just suggest, where are we in the timing of the scriptures? We're right at the very beginning of the early church. Uh, I'm not suggesting that this happened on the day of Pentecost or something in Acts 2, uh, but we are very early on in uh, the events of uh, the, the book of Acts or the, the early church. And again, is this, the, is this the only time that people lied in the book of Acts? Is it, you know, no, it's not. Uh, this is the only time that, that Christians in the first century lied, but this is recorded for us. And what was the reaction when Nadab and Abihu were struck dead? God needs to be glorified. What was the reaction when Uzzah was struck dead? David became fearful and they realized we need to do, they, we need to respect God. We need to do it in the proper order. What's the reaction here in verse 11, where we stopped reading prematurely on purpose? <laughs> Great fear came upon the whole church. Yeah, that 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 needs to be a part of this equation and it, it, it actually it's twice here when ananias is struck dead in verse five great fear came upon all that heard it yeah. and then verse 11 after um sapphira it has died uh, yeah. great fear came upon the whole church we see this uh sometimes in scriptures and, and in my mind what i do is as i put that first fear in verse five just the way that we read it f-e-a-r the, the second fear in verse 11, when I read that, I think of capital F, capital E, capital A, capital R. You know, um, it, it's, you know, when we, when we type in all caps, you know, on Facebook or whatever, because we're excited and we're passionate about something, that's the way that I'm imagining this. Well, everybody that heard the first one, fear came on them. And then it happened again three hours later. Can you imagine? Thanks be to God that we're not struck dead each time that we sin. But what we need to realize is that God is showing us by setting the tone at the beginning of various stages of, of worship, uh, like when they have an Abihu and the beginning of, of, of uh, congregational worship, um, uh, then um, uh, same thing with Uzzah and the same thing here. Um, we, need, we need to learn the lesson from these individuals. Thanks be to God that we're not struck dead, but don't think that we're going to escape those things. Any final thoughts there, guys? So, so I think you made the point. Now, if you, in less than 30 seconds, can you explain verse 13, which says, but of the rest durst no man join himself to them. Uh, who's the them? What, in what sense is the joining? Um, and then how be it the people magnified them? Uh, who are the people? Who's the them that are magnified? Yeah, verse 12, I think, answers all of those questions, doesn't it? Uh, through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. They were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. The apostles, I think, were all in one. But nobody dared to join them, the apostles, 
but the people respected them, uh, the the apostles. That's the way that I've read that. Maybe okay. I'm. But, too... but it, the reason I ask because it seems to be a consequence of of this tremendous thing that's just happened. Right. Right. Uh, yes. And, and the signs that the apostles were able to do. Okay. Very good. Thank you.